Hey, welcome everybody. Andrew Kralachek here. Um, I'm really excited to be able to spend the next hour or so with a dear friend of mine, Kristen Lamarca, who um, I've had the luxury of knowing, gosh, I don't know how many, 10 plus years now. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. At least six or seven, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I will read Kristen's official bio in just a second, but we originally met um, in Stephen LaBerge's uh, somewhat legendary Hawaii retreats. We're, we're both students um, under the mentorship of Stephen, and I think I originally met her whenever it was, the very first one, and then I came back and I started to co-teach a little bit with Stephen, so we hung out a little bit further then, and then we did a program together um, at uh, Shamala Mountain Center here in Colorado. So we had another week to hang out with uh, Stephen. Um, and I, I'm just delighted to be able to spend this time with you. Kristen is, is, in addition to being a dear friend, she's, a, a, I would say, um, an elite Lucy Kramer. She's extremely gifted, very knowledgeable, as you will soon discover for yourself, and just an absolute wealth of uh, resources for this uh, remarkable type of dreaming. So let me give you the official bio on Kristen, and then um, we're definitely not going to have a shortage of things to talk about because we share a really deep passion for this material. Mm. Um, so here's her deal. So Kristen Lamarca, PhD, is a clinical psychologist with expertise in applied psychophysiology and behavioral treatments for sleep disorders, notably insomnia and nightmares. She specializes in lucid dream therapy for a broad range of psychological conditions, so, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety grief and loss. Kristen conducts research with Stephen LaBerge on how to maximize lucid dream induction and has co-authored a study showing that galantamine substantially increases lucid dreaming when combined with a proper mindset. She has been a co-facilitator for Lucidity, for Lucidity Institute's intensive retreat since 2010 and regularly provides trainings in lucid dreaming to healthcare professionals, researchers, and the wider community. She currently practices clinically at Lucidity Sleep and Psychiatry, and we'll have a link attached to that, and um, she'll have a chance to talk about that at the end of our um, together. And she also runs a six-week online workshop in lucid dreaming that integrates induction science with mindfulness approaches and personally tailored coaching, and we'll also send you the link to that. And Kristen, his, um, her program, her lucid dreaming online program, has been frequently referenced in our um, iClub community on the forum page, and so She's uh, developing quite a following in her own right. And so, Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're really thrilled to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. And I'm thrilled to be here, too. And just thank you for your kind words. And, you know, just a couple of things to say about our relationship. You know, I'm, we, we aren't just co-students of the Lucidity Institute. You know, I'm a student of yours, Andrew, and I've just learned so much from you all these years. And even just joining Nightclub recently has been uh, it's just been really wonderful to connect with you and so many people. You're such an engaging teacher. You're like a living encyclopedia sometimes and just so much more. It's just really fantastic to see the, the work that you're doing. And I just, I really wanted to, you know, say thank you for that and just, you know, keep up the good work. So happy to be here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, coming from you, that means a great deal. So, um, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have you both as a member of our uh, developing community and obviously now in the post as I want to interview guests. And so, so gosh, so, so many things to talk about, but, but let's start with like, how did you get into this stuff? Um, tell us a little bit about your first lucid dream and, and what inspired you to take up 
this track um, really as, as a career and as a professional. Um, I think many of our listeners are always really inspired by people like you because, as you well know, Kristen, we don't exactly have a lot of role models in the Western world for mm-hmm. lucid dreaming and the like. And so um, tell us a little bit about how you got into this whole business. Right. Well, you know, I'm not like a lifelong natural lucid dreamer. I, I learned as an adult, um, but I did have a, a lucid dream. My first one was when I was five years old. And it was interesting. It was, it was actually a kind of an out-of-body experience. I was not lucid. Um, I was hiding up in a tree from something and my perspective kind of went over my body and I, I realized that that can't be possible. This has to be a dream. And it was just, it was such a magical moment to kind of see that that was possible in the dream state. Uh, but at the time, you know, I, I didn't do much with it. Um, and, you know, didn't really think much about it until I grew up and uh, I went to college and I was studying psychology at Marquette University. And I was actually taking some courses by Anis Sheikh, who I think he done some work back in the day with Jane Gackenbach, which is who's a, another famous lucid dreaming researcher. And he uh, taught us in his courses on the psychology of death and dying and mental imagery. He taught us about uh, Stephen LeBerge's work and, and lucid dreaming and um, you know, all the different applications and the science that had been done at that time. And when I learned about this, I just had a moment where I was in awe and I was so fascinated by all the possibilities that come with lucid dreaming. It just opens up so many more doors and pathways for harnessing more health and happiness. And, you know, of course, at the time I I was studying psychology and and the cognitive sciences, and um, I was specializing, starting to specialize a little bit more in health psychology, so mind-body health. So uh, there's a lot of different ways that uh, I could see that lucid dreaming could help those, those areas that I was already interested in. So I ended up uh, going to graduate school, but you know, like a lot of curricula, you know, sleep and dream training for professionals, it's a little bit lacking. Um, you do get the base training uh, in the foundations that if you wanted to specialize in those areas, you easily could. But uh, what I ended up doing at the time was I, I sought out um, mentorship from the Lucidity Institute. So I originally attended their program on scholarship in 2007. And then I, I just kept going back and growing with uh, Dr. LaBerge and uh, his organization to the point where I began co-teaching with him and conducting research on how to maximize lucid dream induction. We published a study together. Um, we had a lot of experience with uh, the series of induction devices he's developed over the years. So those of you might be familiar with um, induction devices might know them as like the Nova Dreamer. Uh, more recently, the, the Lucy Q he's been working on. Um, and, and we ended up publishing a, a study together in 2018 um, based on some research he'd been doing for many years, actually. But um, we were able to look at a larger group and uh, test a galantamine, which is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that enhances memory, uh, intensifies REM sleep. These are conditions that are uh, conducive to, to lucid dreaming, and uh, it was very clear from uh, his research that 
um, it, it substantially has a strong effect on um, helping people have lucid dreams when that's combined with uh, all the different induction skills that we already know work to help people lucid dream. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I remember very clearly in, in both the programs I attended, in fact, all three of them, kind of think of it, where I was part of that study, where, where I remember very clearly one night, you know, obviously, uh, I think it was a double blind study, right? So one night, zero milligrams, mm -hmm. nine milligrams, one night, eight milligrams. And, and I, for one, I mean, could totally tell when I had either the placebo. So I was part of that study. So it's pretty mm -hmm. cool. And we did it with our mutual friend, uh, Ben Baird, who is a neuroscientist now at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, and he, he helped us with our analyses and getting it published, so he was involved as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, cool. Well, gosh, I mean, so with that as a background, um, share a little bit with us about uh, your continuing research with Lucidity Institute. I mean, do you guys have other um, projects on the works, other studies that are underway? Mm, there's always a lot of different directions to go. Um, some of the things, you know, that Dr. LaBerge is focusing right, on right now is, you know, the development of the, the software for the uh, most recent induction device. Um, and I, I think he has several other collaborations that I'm entertaining, um, getting involved with. And I think a lot of it is related to some of the, the basic science on, on lucid dreaming. You know, we don't really have strongly validated measures to, to study lucid dreaming yet. And it's a big, um, you know, impediment to, to, to the field. You know, we don't really know all the different ways that people become lucid or different levels of lucidity. We don't have a lot of qualitative measures to study the state. So that's kind of the thing that we've been talking about more recently. And, you know, we have a lot of data from all the years that Dr. LaBerge has um, been doing this work that, you know, it, it needs to be analyzed. And, you know, we're always looking for people to collaborate with and to get help with that. Yeah. And, and for some of the scientific nerds in our community, you know, I mean, um, the kind of phenomenological aspect of it, the qualitative aspect, I'm sure, is one of the things that makes establishing um, any kind of rigorous metric challenging. And so are, are there... Are there other ways that you guys are exploring this? I mean, are you, are you doing thing with, uh, things with imaging? And I know there's studies that Stephen has certainly done with EEGs and the like, but you guys have that luxury of actually doing imaging. Well, not me necessarily, because, you know, I'm not with a neuroscience lab right now, but I'm certain that if you get to have Dr. LeBerge on the show, he could kind of talk to you about that. And uh, Dr. Baird is also another really good person to talk to you about that. They've been doing some studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I think you're aware of that, if I'm if I'm correct. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've had, you know, I've worked with Richie and his people on it in the uh, um, Melanie, who's working with Giulio Tononi, you know, they're doing, mm -hmm. probably, they're doing this really compelling ongoing study um, that really implicates lucidity in the deep dreamless state. And so I've had a little bit of And so, I mean, whenever, if and when that's substantiated, I think that will be as revolutionary as when Keith Hearn and, and Stephen were able to um, verify the authenticity of lucid dreaming itself. So, I mean, in short, it's like really cool all the stuff that's happening, but it's flying pretty mm -hmm. far 
below the radar, wouldn't you say still? Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of hurdles to, to overcome, but it's worth it. You know, I think from a lot of the anecdotal evidence and just theoretically how it aligns with, you know, things that we already kind of know, know work in, in psychotherapy, for example, you know, it's, it's, a worthy candidate to, to explore and try to uh, get funding for. Um, my interest, it hasn't necessarily been recently um, as far as like brain imaging, but more on the therapeutic aspects. And so a lot of my work really has been more focused clinically. Um, and, you know, what you see in the, the research on, on lucid dreaming therapy, um, this is where you, of course, use lucid dreaming in a, a therapeutic context. Um, it's, it's, there's not a lot of evidence for it, actually. We don't really see controlled studies showing that it works much better than anything else. And there's a lot of flaws in the study. And so my interest area at this point is, uh, case studies and, you know, trying to find ways to teach other professionals, um, and, you know, publish on cases that can show, Hey, this is how it's done. This is how you make it work in a practical sense. Uh, this is how it makes sense, uh, theoretically. And I think that's something that could could be a really good contribution to helping the field along. Yeah, totally. So, so tell our listeners more, because I'm sure uh, many folks are, are not even aware of the idea of lucid dream therapy. Like, you know, how does it work? Uh, who is it for? Are there contraindications? So, so tell us a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it's novel therapy. Uh, like I said, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for it, but the great thing about it is that it's easily integrated with the standard evidence-based interventions in psychotherapy that we already know work for most people in most situations. So, uh, and it, it's, it's also broadly applicable to a lot of different things. So that can range from nightmares to trauma and abuse histories, um, to those with combat experience, depression, anxiety, and even just everyday problems, you know, if you have inner conflicts or emotions that you're grappling with day to day, you can use the lucid dream state to explore these more intentionally uh, to facilitate uh, psychologically integrative or healing experiences, more introspection, growth. Um, you know, the fantastic thing about lucid dreaming is that when you become lucid in a dream, uh, well, you know it's a dream, so therefore you know that you're safe. And you, safety, it's one of the most critical components for people to grow as individuals. So in the lucid dream state, you know, you can't be hurt. There aren't going to be any real world consequences to the things that you do, whether that's physically or socially or emotionally. Uh, so you're safe to explore things in new and different ways. Um, and, you know, this really opens up a sense of freedom for people. And that, that really is one of the main benefits. You have freer access to experiences in the lucid dreaming state, uh, freer access to be who you truly are, uh, discover yourself, discover your identity, and you can explore experiences that are personally meaningful to you because the dream state is boundless. You can experience anything that you wish just through expectation and intention while you're in the lucid dream state. And, you know, dreams are they're wonderful for psychotherapy because a lot of things that are important for therapeutic growth come up in therapy. So these could be repressed emotions, repressed memories. These are things that people 
rightfully so, have psychological defenses about. So they don't necessarily come up that easily in talk therapy. But if you're integrating dreams in uh, more uh, unconscious realms, then you know it's, it's just a fantastic territory, very fruitful for, for growth. And when you're in the lucid state and you know you have that heightened sense of safety and freedom, the wonderful thing about it is you can work on developing your psychological flexibility. So that means being more flexible and adaptive as far as how you relate with yourself, the world, other people, um, how you regulate your emotions, your your thinking patterns, how you direct your attention, your, your drives, your actions. So you can learn how to uh, be and relate in, in new and different ways that can be much more helpful and help you get unstuck from from patterns that may be impeding some of your some of your growth. So there's just a lot that um, can come from exploring lucid dreaming in a therapeutic context. You know, one of the other wonderful things is that when you know you're in a dream and you're safe, you can adopt a model of self-integration. So this is where we don't just see the things in our dreams as something separate from us or outside of us or representing something in the real world, but we take ownership of it. We see the things in our dreams as representing something within ourselves, perhaps something that needs healing or something that's been wounded or something that needs our attention in some sort of way. And so it's just a really wonderful way to form a deeper connection between self and other that can be really healing and therapeutic and help a lot of people in their recovery. Yeah, that's really well said. And oh my gosh, did you hit on some um, incredible points there? I mean, the first thing that came to mind was you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Donald Winnicott. I'm sure you're familiar with him, the object relations theory. So he, he talks so beautifully on, about holding environments. And so what you said there, in terms of uh, really the dream being this kind of holding environment. So Winnicott's, um, one of his work, the principal contributions, was this idea that if the proper nurturing environment is there, um, you could say almost um, typically our archetype, um, gestation in the womb, growth and development occurs quite quite beautifully. Um, and as we're born, if we have that same type of holding environment, we grow and develop properly. And if we don't, problems arise. And, and what I do, Kristen, is on the other end, you know, with my work on death and dying, I apply the same tennis in a kind of midwifery principle towards the end of life. The very best thing you can do when someone dies is, is actually create this kind of um, holding environment. But I think what you said here cannot be overstated that the, the dreamscape can provide this type of um, psychological holding environment where, where, in fact, people can feel held, they can relax, and therefore um, work with otherwise um, toward or difficult states of mind you know, towards resolution. Mm -hmm. And also something you said there that struck me, you know, years and years ago, um, not as far back as when LSD was still legal but things like ecstasy um several decades ago you know as you know psychiatrists were actually using it mm -hmm. clinically legally as a way to drop boundaries and and i remember taking it in that capacity and i found it to be really a wonderful supplement to um, dropping inhibitions and, and opening and what the dream state does is is we both well know is it, it creates that same type of arena where um, we can explore these, you know, levels of uh, um, inhibition are dropped, 
and we have access to previously, uh, you know, or, or I should say, relatively inaccessible or difficult. Mm -hmm. So the last thing that you said also really stuck me. It struck me as this idea of developing flexibility, and that to me is is beautiful play on, you know, my transition from lucid dreaming to dream yoga, um, and it plays on the word yoga in terms of like the, you know, the idea of stretching. And so mm -hmm. I often reference the jingle when I'm teaching, you know, blessed are the flexible for they are never bent out of shape, right? And so, <laughs> so we develop this kind of pliability, this malleability um, in relationship to the contents of our mind, because certainly in my experience, both experientially and doctrinally, one of the um, biggest problems we have, whether we know it or not, is, you know, kind of reifying, solidifying the contents of our mind. Mm -hmm. Having solidified, ossified even as we get older, the more ossified we get, ossified levels of identity, feeling that we're somehow victims or somehow stuck in, in poverty states of mind. And, and so what I thought you said about the flexibility that's developed with lucid dream therapy is also extremely um, provocative. So, so are there other applications? Like, for instance, can you give us an example? A, a lot of people um, struggle with nightmares, of course. A lot of people um, mm. struggle things like insomnia, are, mm. are you able to share with us ways that lucid dream therapy can be worked for, uh, applied for one or both of those very common um, conditions? Well, yeah, I mean, nightmares, you know, that's a very clear, direct application of lucid dreaming. Um, you know, typically in nightmares, we tend to have either a flight, fright, or, you know, freeze response, you know, either avoid and try to run away or fighting with these figures or um, we kind of don't really know what to do. We get paralyzed. We, we do nothing. But what lucidity does is it empowers the dreamer to not just try to avoid these experiences, but to form a, a deeper level of engagement with whatever aspect of the nightmare, um, uh, whatever aspect of the self that this nightmare kind of symbolizes. And so typically, you know, that takes um, uh, facing, you know, if you're in a nightmare, whether you're being chased or, you know, about to get killed or something, and uh, trying to have um, a friendly dialogue, um, talk to the figure, try to express compassion, do something a little bit creative and, and different, see if there's a way that you can try to understand uh, what the nightmare actually means in real time. And what often happens in these kinds of dreams is that there's this uh, interplay of the images with the lucidity that can be really therapeutic. You know, these figures can transform into something that all of a sudden reveals the, the meaning to the dreamer or enhances their insight in some sort of way. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of work with people that have um, like abuse history, so you know, it could be physical or sexual or emotional or all three. Um, I've, I've done a lot of work with active duty military and veterans that, that have combat experiences. And you know, one of the really cool things to see is, well, first let me say, you know, that there are treatments already for nightmares. Um, one of them's a drug. It's a it's an alpha blocker called prazosin. Uh, typically, that's that's only prescribed for. Um, individuals that are pretty severe like their nightmares are so bad that they're they're not getting any sleep and often it's people that have you know had combat experiences things like that um or just been in war-torn areas um 
And the other option is something called imagery rehearsal therapy. So um, this is where you sort of go back into the dream that you had with a therapist. You imagine yourself back there, but you imagine changing the outcome to something different, more therapeutic. Um, but what lucid dreaming you know, does is it makes that model for relating and changing dream content a lot more flexible, a lot more adaptive for individuals. And what I often see with, um, well, let me use it, a soldier, for example, that I've, I've worked with, um, if you try to do just standard imagery rehearsal therapy, tell them, well, what would you do differently in your dream? You know, uh, let's change the outcome. They can't do it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're still under that same mental model of the world in that they're not safe. Uh, they have a duty, for example, to you know, be there for their, uh, you know, their other Marines uh, or to serve or, um, you know, they, you know, there's somebody hurting or in their dream. They have to make sure they tend to them. They're stuck in these models of the world that see the world as real. But yeah. what giving a uh, model of lucidity does it, is it opens them up completely like, I could take a step back and I could look at this differently. I'm much more free and there's many more creative responses that I can explore in the dream state. And one of the important ones with that is that they can start to see the dream images, not as something bad that has happened to them in the past or someone they knew that died, for example, but they see it as a part of themselves. So it's no longer this helpless thing that's like outside of them that they really can't do anything about. Now they can take ownership for it. They can take responsibility for it. And they could see it as something within themselves that might need healing and use these standard lucid dreaming therapy techniques that we know foster self-integration. So that could be engaging with the figure, expressing compassion, having a friendly dialogue, trying to uh, find meaning or insight by talking to these figures. And it's just really interesting to see how Lucidity opens up so many more pathways for people to to grow beyond some of those more rigid models of the world that have kept them stuck in and suffering for so long. Yeah, that's really, really well said. And, and this idea of rigid models, I mean, really kind of comes down to the whole thing, because I, I don't think it can be overstated, Kristen, that this 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 issue of solidification, reification, certainly in the wisdom traditions, you know, um, especially in Buddhism, I mean, reification is is the whole shebang. I mean, we we suffer in direct proportion to how solidly we take the contents of our mind and our reality. And so for me, gosh, what you said is just so spot on that what the dream can do is it can de-reify, it it can soften this otherwise ossified relationship to the contents of mind and therefore profoundly alter one's relationship to it. And so what, what, what came to my mind is very often when I, you know, as a meditation instructor, um, we work a lot as meditation instructors with sometimes difficult issues, and and oftentimes it borders on psychological um, concerns. But one of the things that that I often share with my meditation students, and I think has direct applicability to the dream state, is um, fundamentally learn how to love your mind, because uh, in relation to daytime meditation, you know, thoughts. Thoughts are just the children of your mind. And uh, you could say at night, dreams are just the children of your mind. And unless you're a pretty whacked out parent, you know, you're not going to strangle your kids. You're not going to body slam them to the ground. But we tend to do that. We don't have this kind of loving relationship to the contents of our 
my mind. And so what I hear when you're talking about these forms of dream therapy, which is really beautiful, is it's just it's a, a nocturnal way to apply that same maxim that love the contents of your mind as they express themselves in the dream state, realize they are the children of your mind. And, and really, especially with unwanted experience, um, like as they manifest in the dream state, for me, this slides under the, the rubric of what I you know, the transforming obstacles and opportunities that if we relate to the nightmare situation in this kind of alchemical or, or opportunistic way, we realize that what these unwanted experiences, um, these nightmares are actually presenting to us are in fact exactly what you're saying, opportunities for integration. Because when we throw part of ourselves away, which is what we do all the time when we are unable to digest and metabolize um, experience completely, completely. Well, when we throw that experience away, where does it go? I mean, out of sight does not mean out of mind. Out of sight in this case means into the unconscious mind. And so in my experience, when you have a nightmare, these rejected disenfranchised as aspects of yourself are, are in a certain way, and I, Stephen writes about this very beautifully, Mm -hmm. They're coming back in a certain sense. They're calling back for integration, for love, or in, you know, even individuation. So when you talk about this in the context of in the context of um, therapy in the nocturnal arena, I mean, I just find that a beautiful, natural extension of these foundational tenets. I mean, doesn't that speak to you? Does it make sense? Yeah, and I, I love hearing your perspective because you use more of the Eastern language and it, it, it all kind of integrates with some of my training in science and psychology. And, you know, I think it just integrates really beautifully and I, I love it. It's 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 really great to talk to you, actually. No, no, I mean, thank you for sharing that. And so, you know, another way to say this, and then I'll turn it back to you, is that you know, what defines a non-lucid dream in many ways is we're too close to the dream. We, we actually get sucked into the dream. We lose any sense of perspective or awareness. And by implication, um, uh, we reify the dream and take it to be real. And so I often find um, the same problem that defines non-lucidity in the nocturnal dream arena is um, also reiterated in, in my life when I often have problems um, that remain intractable because I'm too close to them. I'm, I'm non-lucid to the problem. I'm mm -hmm. lost in the problem. And so by, and, and I love this idea of um, what I've been talking about frequently in the nightclub arena, this foundational tenet for me of bidirectionality, you know, that what you do in the waking state affects the dream state, what you do in the dream state with therapies like this can mm -hmm. absolutely affect what we do in the daytime arena. And I have absolutely found that as my proficiency and lucidity at night takes place, I bring that same level of proficiency, i.e. perspective, to my waking state. And so contents of mind that would previously have sucked me in, that I would have reified, that I would have ossified, and therefore suffered in direct proportion to that, that perspective that is generated in my nighttime um, lucidity now kind of pings and pops up into my daytime mind. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.